Welcome to this month's MacLearning.org webcast. I'm Scott Morris, your host and moderator. I want to remind our viewers, if you've uh, viewed webcasts in the past, that you can enter in questions in the text chat window at the bottom of your viewer. And we'll see those questions here in the studio, and we'll uh, answer those at the end of today's webcast. Also, we will have an uh, archive of this posted in the MacLearning.org iTunes U uh, page hosted by Duke University, and that will be available in about two weeks. So uh, you can always go there and download the archive and review it, or uh, let others that may have missed today's webcast that they can grab it in about two weeks at that site. Today we're going to be talking about Mobile AP, the mobile academic platform. And uh, online today with us, we have Anton Harfman and Pete Akins from University of Cincinnati's College of Design, Architecture, and Planning. And also uh, Lloyd Thompson from Apple. Uh, I just want to make sure that we have everyone on the line. Anton and Pete, are you with us? Yep, we're here. All right, great. And Lloyd, how about you? I'm here. All right. So let's go ahead and get uh, started. Uh, Anton's going to kick things off. And uh, Anton, go ahead and just let me know when uh, we need to advance the slide here. Okay, you can go ahead and advance to the first slide. Um, eight years ago, the College of DAAP um, initiated a mandatory laptop purchase. Um, and in that environment, uh, we've learned quite a few things over the past eight years. Um, so. What we're recognizing is that students nowadays are coming out of high school with uh, significant skill sets and expectations, and they also are equipped with alternative modes of inquiry. Um, so over the past eight years, this has simply accelerated. Our students are now much, much more capable um, and in many cases exceed the skills and capabilities of faculty members. Um, so oddly enough, we are still in many cases, teaching in mid-20th century mindsets. So we're still using chalkboards or whiteboards or overhead projectors or these kinds of things. Um, so the question arose uh, this year in some brainstorming exercises in the university as well as in our college, what does the classroom of the 21st century look like? Um, do we even need a classroom with um, so much content available online. What is the actual nature of teaching at higher academic institutions? Uh, and how can we rethink that? To begin to answer some of those questions, we decided to team up with Apple to host a, a national conference this past summer um, to get some of the people who are most dramatically uh, influencing this question and who are trying things with technology um, to come here and talk about uh, the nature of education in higher uh, ed in the um, in the uh, university. So uh, the next slide, please. Um, you should have gone through a sequence of uh, lots of students with laptops in our building. Uh, so the next slide um, illustrates the idea of the basic con uh, conference uh, concept. Um, the conference was structured around the premise that the coexistence of digital and physical realms on campuses is necessary for a successful 21st century environment. Um, there is this digital physical divide, uh, and we were trying to use the conference as a way to actually address that. So Vision 2020 was an attempt to look at the concept of teaching in this new uh, 21st century digitally equipped environment where students have expectations and skills for access to, te to technology and information that is unprecedented. Um, so rather than host a traditional conference with academic papers, for instance, being presented by someone on the stage uh, to an audience of participants that are simply taking notes and asking questions at the end, we chose to recast the meeting utilizing technology, the same technology our students are accustomed to using um, and that they all happen to have on their laps to challenge the one directional flow of information in the classroom of the 20th century to look at what it could be as a 21st century classroom. One of the things that we've noticed is the increased mobility of um, the students and the size of the devices and the capacity and the uh, capabilities of some of those devices. And we wanted to capitalize that. Now keep in mind that 100% of our students have laptops. 
so those laptops allow us to do things in classrooms already, but the idea of being able to equip them with a device that they could also use and interact with as they're walking, um, as they're sitting on a bus and so on, uh, opens up a whole other set of possibilities. So the first thing we did, if, next slide please, um, is to consider anything that we did um, should be basically web-based. Uh, here you can see one of our students um, interacting already in a classroom. Um, in this case, I think I aming uh, one of her classmates uh, probably three rows away. Um, but this interaction happens pretty routinely. So the idea of making something uh, that is compatible, device independent, that is uh, web-based, was um, something that we were very interested in doing. Um, so in the conference, the idea was also to try to put the attendees um, in the same mindset and using the same technology and, and ideas that the students are using. So what we developed was intentionally uh, web-based, so it wasn't necessarily tied to a particular device um, like those clickers that you can buy now that interact with a personal response system in a classroom. We were trying to develop something that allowed you to do that without having to invest in yet another device. Um, so this, the idea was then to force the attendees at the conference, um, or invite, I should say, uh, the attendees at the conference to participate in this way, uh, to actually um, react, add content, um, answer questions, or participate in ways um, on the fly during the presentations instead of sitting there quietly taking notes um, while someone is speaking. Um, so the next slide illustrates um, one of the obvious things that having people participate uh, in real time uh, can do. In this case, you can see that as soon as someone registered for the conference, we knew what state they were from, we knew that uh, uh, what their title was, and so on, and we could uh, collect all sorts of data about their profiles, about um, what they do, and, and these statistics and interesting uh, uh, pieces of information could actually change um, the topics and change the way we addressed certain things. Um, likewise, students could do that as well. I mean, if you had students in a class, you would have some demographic information. You would know who has background in certain things instead of having them raise hands and so on. And then you also have that statistical information for other purposes um, for analysis later on. So data collection, um, the obvious thing is if this is all tied to database-driven uh, solution, the web-based uh, Opportunity allows any device, and the database-driven solution allows us to do all sorts of um, interesting comparisons and so on. Um, so the next slide illustrates what we did in the conference. Um, and in this slide, you can see, uh, obviously, just being able to do schedules, um, a very simple thing of telling people where they need to be when and then being able to link to information about that session and so on. Um, and Pete will, of course, show you more of that later on. But the idea of just simply giving information, it still works as a delivery of information in this situation, but we were far more interested in what might happen uh, dynamically if the flow of information happened in reverse and informed um, what was going on in the conference. So the next slide, um, you may have to click twice here. Um, the next slide is uh, illustrating the Dean's panel, which is where it got really terribly interesting. What we were interesting, uh, what we're interested in trying to do here was the very first formal presentation was uh, three or four deans sitting on the stage in a conventional panel format. Um, and what we wanted to do here is engage the audience in a certain way to either direct the questions of the panel or to inform the moderator of certain things. So the moderator in this situation um, was able to monitor what was going on in terms of the back channel discussion, very much is what's happening right now with the webcast where people may be asking questions and emailing those in or, or texting those into the, um, into the web chat uh, section. We use that thing to then actually steer the next question of the, of the panel discussion. And here you can see one example of that where these questions were actually generated um, by the audience and distilled and then sent back um, uh, to the audience. As you can see in the next slide, 
um, where the questions were answered and the moderator could then actually determine what was the most pressing thing on the minds of the participants. Likewise, you can imagine a classroom using this and saying, okay, I just covered three very difficult concepts. Tell me whether you want which ones of these you didn't quite get. You could actually poll the students directly instead of having them um, raise their hand uh, or uh, you know, embarrassingly raise their hand and ask a question, which we know most freshmen, sophomores, and juniors don't do. Seniors tend to be a little bit more bold and brazen, but uh, the uh, freshmen certainly are simply not going to raise their hand in a large classroom setting. And this gives them the opportunity to um, ask a question without the embarrassing reality of thinking that their question is dumb, which despite our efforts to say that you know, there is no such thing as a dumb question, um, they simply won't ask. Um, so we tried to use the conference as a way to um, organize conference events and to rethink the way that the conference would actually flow, but hopefully giving the faculty and deans and provosts there the opportunity to envision how something like this could actually be recast as an academic or a classroom environment. Um, and quite honestly, that's where we're headed next anyway. Um, so the next slide shows again another example of uh, a series of questions that was asked, uh, what's the next topic you would like the panel to address? Um, in some cases, uh, these questions were pre uh, pre-generated before the session even began. We asked the people to, um, to uh, identify questions or topics that they'd like a panel to discuss instead of having the moderator make that up on the fly. And in this particular situation, these six questions were ones that um, were generated on the fly and the moderator distilled the, the uh, discourse that was happening on the back channel um, and used these. And then these questions were re-asked to the audience to have them um, vote on which ones they would like the uh, panelists to discuss next. So it was a very interesting um, opportunity there to actually get the, um, get the audience to participate. Um, and furthermore, the interesting thing there is all of this stuff was um, then recorded in perpetuity. The next slide should show um, one of these uh, back channel discourse sessions. It happens kind of like a threaded discussion. Uh, each person's logged in and they leave their um, they leave their comment and the comment then is obviously archived. Uh, we have all those comments and we can parse those later. Um, we can also parse those and combine them with the statistical information that we've already collected on who some of these people might be um, and identify uh, some trends and so on. But the idea here was that we actually were able to look at the comments um, and some of the disc discourse that was happening in parallel to the panelists um, speaking and could actually pose this as a series of new um, questions for them to ask. Um, so the next slide um, indicates uh, another thing that we tried to use the system for. In this situation, you'll see uh, roundtable discussions. Um, at many conferences, the schedule is very often predetermined, so you end up going uh, to sessions and you know roundtable discussions or birds of a feather sessions or whatever are predetermined and invariably what happens is everybody crowds into one room um, because everybody has similar uh, topics to discuss and other people might um, you know might only be two or three people in one section not that that not that that topic is uninteresting or not important it's just there are other pressing things. So what we try to do with the roundtable discussion is put out there a series of um, topics and have people vote on the topics. And these were topics, again, that people said that they were interested in talking about. So in this situation, you can see about 10 or so different topics. Um, and what we did then was we put them in spaces according to popularity and demand. So integrating mobile devices into the curriculum, which happens to be the biggest um, draw, we actually placed that group in one large room, or in some cases we didn't have a large room, in which case we put them into smaller rooms, um, so that, that we didn't have to exclude anyone from any of the sessions that they wanted to go to in this situation. So if your main um, goal was to talk about faculty development, there would be a session for you, and it would be in the appropriate room. So we actually used the the device and the, the interactivity as a way to um, 
change the discourse, not only in terms of asking what is it you want to talk about in these roundtable open-ended sessions, but um, which things are you most interested in talking about? And then we could uh, tailor the conference the, the rest of that day accordingly, um, according to their responses. Um, so the next slide um, shows uh, the ability of actually being able to capture some of that content. So during the roundtable discussions, we actually had a scribe in each one of those. Um, and the scribe, as you can see uh, from, the, um, from that edit discussion slide, the, the scribe actually typed in a summary of everything during that section in a wiki-based thing in real time again. Um, and these things, again, would be available online in perpetuity. So we have not only the statistical information from um, the profiles of the people who registered for the conference, we have some of their discourse, um, and we also now have distillations of some of these roundtable discussions that uh, give us additional information and uh, interesting um, topics to consider for any future uh, development. So uh, it was quite an interesting um, event to try to actually recast how we teach using devices that are uh, web-enabled um, and allowing people to participate and interact in ways that uh, aren't traditional in a normal academic setting. Um, and the last slide is, the, uh, is our current DAP space. Uh, what we, it's uh, sort of our version of Blackboard. Um, we run a parallel uh, web portal for our own college, um, and we are building that into this into our environment uh, so that um, we can actually use this in classroom settings uh, to actually teach. So imagine uh, if I'm teaching a structures class and there's a very complex concept, um, let's say moment of inertia, uh, I can give a little tiny quiz um, to the uh, students in the room and have them see if they get the concept. And if I get a response rate of you know 10% that get the right answer, then I'll know I have to cover that in a different way or use a different example so that they actually do make sense of it. Um, so the idea there is to actually build this entire strategy um, into our classroom setting at some point so that we can actually more effectively deliver coursework uh, at the same time. So that's the synopsis of what the premise of the conference was, bring together all these people who are doing similar things um, using um, multiple devices uh, and taking advantage of recasting um, the way we teach in higher, ec uh, higher education um, in new light given the technology and the tsunami of new students who are coming with this kind of uh, skill level and expectation. Okay, so the next uh, thing I'm going to do is pass this to Lloyd Thompson um, who will talk about uh, using this uh, system for another purpose. Okay, take it away Lloyd. Uh, thanks a lot, Anton. So as, as he already uh, mentioned, Apple uh, <clears throat> participated in, in the conference where this, this technology was sort of uh, deployed for the first time. And we came out with like a really high interest in the application for, for a variety of purposes. And the first purpose that we, tried to, that we decided to use it on, and you can go in advance to the next slide, was for our national educational sales meeting. Uh, 700 attendees, uh, salespeople, right? Each each were given a device with the vision that this would be a paper-free conference, that attendees would be allowed to interact uh, and provide real-time feedback to presenters through the polling features, as well as the discussion features. And this was, in our mind, really kind of a, a trial by fire because most of the time, for almost all the sessions, these people would all be basically in the same room in a hotel you know, 700 people on a hotel network. And uh, so one of the first things that I did when I, you know, took a look at this code because I wasn't too familiar with the, the actual, uh, you know, core of the application was to basically make sure if it, that it met some basic, uh, you know, conditions for, to make this a successful uh, deployment. And of all the preconditions I set out, um, basically most of, most of them having to do that, the interaction with the server itself was going to be minimized. It met those um, basically, you know, by using, you know, Web 2.0 technologies uh, like AJAX to assure that the the interaction with the server that we had set up was going to be as small as possible, so that when you know those 700 attendees were told to vote, 
they weren't downloading, you know, and refreshing the entire thing every single time, which would just clog up that, that hotel network. And so if you go to the next slide, with the application being, you know, very, very solid, we were able to focus on the infrastructure. And we didn't make any, any modifications to the hotel wireless, which was running an 802.11b network. We did bring in an XServe into the, into the hotel and set it up there. Um, and the, the big modifications we made were actually to Apache to assure that uh, we could get that performance we were looking for. And uh, of the two, um, probably the most important were the, the mod deflate module, which gzips uh, text files. And this is, a, this is a great performance enhancer because Safari and Mobile Safari will both accept a, a zipped file in place of JavaScript, CSS, HTML. And you get uh, the sort of performance where a CSS file that's 40 kilobytes can come down to 4. A JavaScript file that's 80 kilobytes can come down to 16 kilobytes. And already there, when everybody's you know, busting out the touch to you know, download everything, that's, you're now, you've now minimized that greatly. And the other thing we did was to set up some caching rules um, uh, in Apache, basically to cache it for the week of the conference. The caching rules for the iPhone are a little bit, are a little bit odd, um, so we weren't able to cache the entire app, but we were able to cache about half the files, including the images and most of the JavaScript as well, and that really helped. And so the, you know, just to give you an idea, the download time that we were talking about is when somebody pulled it out, uh, everything was ready to go in under five seconds, and and this was really shown off in our first test. Uh, and if you go to the next slide, um, where we did a polling on kind of the, the Monday morning of the conference, of all 700 people, we really hadn't had any sort of large-scale test like this. We had done 80 around a single access point, but we didn't have everybody in there at once. And the votes just rolled in, no complaints. No problems, and we had 400 votes, which is about what we were expecting. We didn't expect everybody to vote in, you know, probably about 30 seconds. So, and this was a, this vote was actually, you know, a business decision. People were being asked to make a decision about the direction of the business. So it was high stakes, and and it worked great. So, uh, and probably the most widely used piece throughout of it was the discussion piece. Uh, both for people to kind of have back-channel discussions and also for the presenters to kind of get feedback about where things went. And this was happened in the context of sort of positive things where people were really enjoying the session, but also, you know, areas where people thought there needed to be improvement, and not only in the, in the, in the actual presentation itself, but sort of the, the content surrounding the presentation. So it, a lot of the presenters were going back and, and looking at this within the context of their presentation over the course of the hour, right? So they could tell when, when, where things lined up to, to what they were talking about. Uh, and over the course of the week, throughout all this, you know, high, high usage, we reached 1,100 requests, uh, requests per second maximum, which was, you know, 800 kilobytes a second transfer. And that added up to 8% CPU usage. I think that, more than anything, is a testament to the platform this is built on, uh, Apache, PHP, MySQL, which is, I think is a great, great development platform, but also to the small data interaction that you're getting from the AJAX and the JSON uh, that this is built on. And uh, to talk more about the platform, I'll go ahead and uh, pass this over to Pete. Thanks, Lloyd. Um, so one of the things that we wanted to talk about here was, was sort of what makes up this platform, um, how I, we originally developed it, um, how it came about, what tools we used, um, and also give you an opportunity to actually uh, take it for a spin. So let's go to the next slide. So um, as you've no doubt realized, this is um, web-based software written using PHP and MySQL. That, that forms the, the core of what the back end does to, to handle the data and everything like that. The mobile Safari front end, which is sort of the, um, the nice-looking, the cool-looking part of all this, um, is, is built using Dash Code 2.0, which is part of the iPhone SDK. So um, one thing that is currently not part of the, uh, the, the download that I'll be talking about in a short bit is the actual um, Dash Code project file, um, mostly because there's still some, some stuff I'm not terribly uh, comfortable with yet. Um, but uh, 
basically, you, you know, all this was built um, using that dash code uh, environment where you can build a web app and it has a lot of the look and feel of, of an iPhone application. Um, we are releasing this as an open source under the BSD license, um, and we'll, I'll have a link here in a short bit. Um, this is something we are definitely looking um, for active uh, you know, feedback and, and that sort of thing. Um, the current version we have is really designed with conferences in mind, um, and obviously both of these cases here uh, were used with conferences in mind. Um, all of our future development, all the work that I'm going to end up doing and all the work that, I, that, that probably we, we get from anyone who wants to participate is going to take into account classroom settings because that is definitely where a lot of us are, are looking for an additional innovation there. And obviously that's a very different type of uh, setup, especially as far as the iPhone application works because the schedule is different, you know, the, the concept of attendees is different. But um, in the end, the, 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 the core is the same. Um, there's just some changes that would need to be made. So let's go to the next slide. And I'll talk a little bit about if you want to um, integrate this into your own environment for either a conference or something else you're doing, um, there's some site requirements. Um, obviously, you need a web server. Um, and, and in theory, it should work with any standard web server. Um, the only thing I've truly tested on is Apache. Um, it doesn't require an OS X server to do this with. Um, However, again, that's, that's what we've tested it on. There are probably some situations where we might need to alter some things um, in another environment, but, but it's all standard HTML and PHP. Um, this does work with PHP 5.x, um, which is readily available for any platform, um, and, uh, and access to a MySQL 5.x database. Um, and it does not have to be in the same server. I think um, in, in our case, um, our database server was on a different machine. Um, I imagine in, in the case of the uh, education sales meeting, it was on the same server. In many cases, it can be the same server if this is something being brought in, but it doesn't have to be. That could be depending on what, you, what infrastructure you may already have in place. Um, there does require some knowledge of the above technologies. The one thing that you don't get here is you don't get a nice little package installer where this thing works. Um, you, you do have to know a little bit about Apache, a little bit about MySQL to do this. Um, I do my best to document some things to ensure that you can get to where you need to go. Um, but, but in some cases, you may need to have some additional um, expertise in these areas to work through some uh, site-specific things. Um, and of course, it can exist in an existing web server database system. So um, this isn't very invasive. Um, any, any web server you have, PHP and MySQL available, um, this is going to work, um, and, and there shouldn't be too many problems with that. So if you want to go to the next here, and, and um, what I'm going to do here in a, in a little bit is, is go through a little demo of what the iPhone thing uh, looks like. So um, if we can start with that, I'll, I'll um, try and follow along as, as I'm looking here. So what you see here is, is the iPhone simulator, um, which is showing kind of an example of what this is and what you'll see if you download the software. We have some welcome session. We have the sessions, the attendee directory. This is sort of what you'll get. Um, in the welcome area, it gives you an opportunity to um, you know, have a welcome for the attendees, um, and this is also where we sort of develop the map. The map actually is, is uses Google Maps um, API to generate its map, um, so that's something that we use um, already there. It's not something we built in. Um, going to the attendee directory, um, you'll see um, those of you who, who are familiar with iPhone development may uh, find the, the attendees a little humorous. Um, but basically, you have various attendees where you can look at their information. Um, you can, you know, tap them. There, there's opportunities for photos. There's also the opportunity to, um, you know, tap on the user, and you'll be able to send an email message to them, that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, you'll see you have, you have all your other attendees there, and obviously that list can get long. So you have the opportunity to drill down and find the attendees you want to by simply tapping, and then it'll sort of filter the list. Um, in a small environment, this isn't really a big deal, but when you have, you know, hundreds of attendees, that might be an issue. But the, the meat of where this is is in the session area. Um, again, for the conference mode, we basically, um, everything revolves around the schedule. And in this case, we have a fictitious uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday session where we can look at the various days of the conference. Um, and then we have items that basically are both, you know, just regular schedule items like breakfast and breaks. But then the items that you have, the little arrows next to it are actual sessions. And this is where you know, most of the interaction takes place. Um, each session has the opportunity to have info, information and abstracts where you can talk about that. Um, a presenter, which you will basically can look at that pr presenter's uh, thing. Um, you have links where people can add and, um, and, and share links, both the presenters and the attendees. The question section, which is allows um, people to submit questions, which I'll go in detail later, and then the discussion section. 
So going back to the links area, um, you have a, an area place where you can add the links. Um, anytime you, you do the links, you have to log in as a user. Obviously, there is some login that needs to happen here. Um, and this uses the email address. And once you're logged in, um, you know, again, any presenter or attendee can submit um, a link, you know, a, a URL, and, and a title to go with it. And this is a great thing where if, if someone's talking about a particular thing that's relevant to the session, you, know, you can share like, hey, take a look at this, and it's a great way to share other resources that are out there um, relevant to whatever session this is. Um, and that, that's obviously a very important thing to do. Um, another very um, important thing is the question area where you can get feedback from the, uh, the people. Um, and basically here you can, you can ask a certain question and then uh, present several re possible responses uh, to answer. Um, and, and what it allows you to do is, is to get some feedback from the users. Um, and then you know, once a user submits this, they get an answer and then they, they again, using the, the Google Chart API, I can generate a nice little chart. Um, one real nice thing about this, and, and um, something that probably Lloyd can attest to with the NESM is, is that as this is going on, this is auto-updating in the background, and it's basically getting new responses. So in our little fictitious example here, you'll see that someone else answered, and then this, the chart and the data update as people continue to answer. So you can literally see the answers coming in um, as it goes on. But this uses very little bandwidth since it basically just does a very quick um, JSON AJAX request. And so, so the bandwidth is very, very small. You know, it's not reloading everything as it's doing this. Um, the actual questions are managed using the administration interface that I'll sort of talk about in a bit. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is the discussion section. Um, this is where, you know, think of this like a, a moderated uh, iChat discussion, um, an instant messenger type of thing, um, where you can t start, you know, typing things, and then you get um, a situation where, you know, you have your, your post, and then it's obviously time and date stamps with whoever did that. And um, in addition to the questions area, as additional people participate in the conversation as new things come in, you know, periodically um, your device is going to go and see if there are any new um, messages that come out. This, this isn't real time like iChat, but generally, um, and I believe the default setting is something like five or ten seconds, uh, it might be a little longer, where it basically will poll to see if there are any new um, posts to be done. And as we'll see here in a short bit, um, you know, someone else can talk about it, and, and you'll start to see the discussion happen. And as we found in, in our session um, with Vision 2020, um, th this, this created this virtual environment, which in, in, a, in a large lecture situation you don't have because, you know, people can't talk while someone else is talking. So it allows um, um, people to do that um, in a way that is very, um, you know, dynamic and interactive. So um, and this is essentially how, how, it, how it's uh, functioning today. There are plenty of opportunities for um, other enhancements to this, and of course we did some enhancements um, for the Vision 2020 conference. Uh, I'm not aware if, if, if um, Apple added anything for their conference, but you know, th there's a lot of areas to hook into. Um, currently the, the, the interfaces for those aren't um, as clean, and so you would have to have quite a bit of coding experience to add these things in there. Um, however, as time goes on, we'll likely have those interfaces available to make it easily allow, um, add certain things like local information and other things like that. So if we can go to the next slide, we can um, talk about the installation and usage. So you saw this, it looks um, pretty interesting, and now you want to um, see how you can use it in your own environment. So um, we'll go to the next slide and we'll, we'll sort of give some quick instructions here. The first thing is um, we have a website that we have here. Um, our, our, our college website, um, dap.ucdu slash mobile AP. Um, you can download the archive from there, and um, including um, you know, everything you need to get started. Um, you basically extract the archive. Um, you'll see you'll place the contents of the, the HTML folder on a folder in your um, web server. Um, it can either be on the root of the folder, or if you want to create a subfolder and, and then do that, that's fine too. Um, you want to create a database on your MySQL server, um, um, and whatever you want to call it, that's fine. Um, but you'll need to create a database on that. Um, and then there's a config.php file that I'll show in a second where you need to change some of the options to tell it where your database server is and what database you are using. Um, and then there's a setup.php file you'll need to load into your browser which will um, create the appropriate database tables and also adds an administrative user so then you can start doing the administrative stuff. Um, the administrative stuff is all done through a regular desktop browser. Um, I suppose you could use an iPod Touch or an iPhone for that. However, it, it's, it's using um, 
a more desktop. Um, it's not an iPhone app. So um, you would want to use a, um, a regular desktop browser to do this, simply just because it, there's some complicated data that, that would be tough to uh, replicate in the small environment. So we'll go to the, the next slide. So I'll give you an example here. Uh, we'll kind of go through this. So when you, when you extract that archive, you'll, you'll see a couple files. Uh, there's a README file there that talks about um, you know, some of these instructions here, um, a license file which describes the licensing, which, again, this is a BSD license. Um, all we ask is that you, um, you know, give the University of Cincinnati credit for, for that and that that license file stays in the, in the archive. But beyond that, you have, you have the freedom to, to alter the, the, the software as, as you need to. Um, and then you would rename um, the HTML folder, put it in your web server, call it whatever you'd like. Um, for the examples I'm giving here, I'm, I'm going to assume you called it mobile AP, um, but, but you can call it whatever you like. So in the next slide, um, I'll show you, you need to go into that uh, INC, the includes folder, and edit the uh, config.php file. Um, that's important, so that way you can tell it where everything is located. Um, and in the next slide, um, we'll, I'll sort of show you in that config.php file, um, there's a little spot there where you can um, edit the, the, the DB host, the DB user, the DB password, and the database, which um, for those of you who have done any work in PHP MySQL, that should be self-explanatory. Um, obviously, localhost would, would mean it's on the same server as your web server, um, but it can be any you know, IP address or DNS uh, entry that, that wherever your database server is. And as long as there's an appropriate username and password um, who, who has the ability to access the database, um, that should be fine. And um, you'd want to consult the, the MySQL documentation or your, your database administrator for how to do that sort of thing, um, since that can vary. Um, from place to place. So I'm um, going to the next slide here. I'll, I'm going to sort of briefly just outline how the data structure is. Um, you know, we have attendees and users, which, which you know, again, as this goes forward in a classroom situation, the, the users become you know your students and, and faculty, that sort of thing. Um, but the main area is the sessions. Um, in this case, the sessions are where the questions, the links, and discussions are sort of linked back to. So, so the questions, links, and discussion are tied to a session. Um, this, this, this works really well for a conference scenario. This doesn't necessarily um, work right for a classroom scenario, but, but you can imagine once we move forward that the sessions become classes. And that's, that's what we do. And then the schedule is sort of an aside part here, which, which basically is, is applicable for the conference where you're basically allowing, you know, you, you set up a schedule of here, this is when this happens, this is when that happens. And obviously part of that schedule says, well, at this point in time, this session is going to happen, and that's how you link all that together. Um, for a classroom situation, it's going to be a little different, um, but, but that's generally how it's going to work. So if we go to the next slide. Um, so once you've got that installed, once you've set up your admin user, um, now you want to start using the admin interface. So if you go to, you know, and I, I give the, the, H, the URL here of your web server, whatever that is, and then slash mobile AP or whatever folder you created for, or if you decide to put this in the root of your web server, it would just be the root. But then you want to load the admin.php file. And then what will happen there is you'll log in using that email address you used. Um, as a reminder, the, the system uses the email address for um, user login. So that's what you're going to want to use when you, when you admin that. And then you're going to build a schedule by choosing the add item and fill out the form. Um, I don't have a, a, too many slides of, of showing that just because it, I, I guess it's fairly self-explanatory. Um, also, I'll talk about customizing how that looks. But for the most part, um, you simply add an item to the schedule um, and then you do it that way. So the next slide, um, the next thing you want to do is add some sessions. Um, you, you'll want to add the session. Right now, the system sort of assumes that the session number should be three-digit numbers. Um, I imagine that um, in most cases, the session numbers could be practically anything. Um, however, um, we'll say it's been tested with three-digit numbers, and we know that works really well. Um, and then once the session has been added, then you can start adding things like questions, links, and presenters. Um, the presenters are really important because um, what, what's happening is the presenters are, are able to administer their own sessions. So what you'll want to do is make sure you have a presenter, um, make sure they're, they're in the attendee database, um, and then add them as presenters. And then when they can go to the same admin interface, and they will be able to manage their session, um, which is very important because you know, if, if you're organizing a conference, you may not want to manage that all for them. You, know, you want them to do some of that. Um, however, as administrators, you know, the, the site administrators can administer any session and um, do all that. So in the next slide, we'll talk a little bit about the attendees and users. So um, in the administrative interface, there's, there's an option for um, attendee administration. Um, you can either add attendees manually. Um, there's a form where you can sort of add their name, email, organization, that sort of stuff. 
or by uh, importing a CSV or tab delimited file. Um, in, in, the, in the archive that I have, I've included an example file that um, should show you the field order. Um, there's some additional fields there, just so that way you get everything in the right order. And then the import works uh, pretty flawlessly there. Um, and again, the email address is used for login and has to be unique. And also, you must have an email address. So, um, you know, if you have a situation where, where you need to have people log in, you'll need to give them an email address. It doesn't necessarily have to be a valid, you know, an email address that actually works. I mean, it's not going to send them a message or anything. However, um, it's going to need to be at least a valid-looking email address. And at, at this point, the system as it stands right now does not use a password. Um, this was done because for the most part for conferences, you know, authentication and that sort of thing isn't really a critical thing. Um, you know, people are using their own email addresses and, and that sort of thing. Um, I suppose someone could pose as someone else and, and do that, but, but for a conference that's generally not an, an issue. And we found that when we started doing this and we had a password, we realized that it was going to be a bit of a, um, a drag on attendees using this. You know, if they had to type in too much things and remember a password to log into this, it, it, was, it was actually going to detract from the experience. Um, so um, obviously in a classroom setting, that's, that's going to be different. We're going to want a password because you're going to want to kind of make sure the students are who they are and that sort of thing. But for this time, it doesn't use a password. And then also there, there's an option for each attendee to make them an administrator. And what this does is this basically makes them system administrators, and they can manage all aspects of the conference, including the sessions, the schedule, and the attendees. Um, you don't want to give regular presenters this option, otherwise they can do everything. So um, going to the next slide, um, if you want to view the site, you'll basically go to the web server and, and go to you know, mobile AP or whatever you call it. And as you do this on a desktop browser, it's going to give you a very vanilla desktop version. Um, the other thing that, that we probably didn't focus on here is that since this is a web-based solution, it doesn't require you know, um, the use of, of a mobile device like an iPod or an iPod Touch or an iPhone. Um, you also can use a regular web browser. Um, because it's, it's a very generic interface, it's something that you as a conference are going to want to customize the look. Um, however, um, you, know, you can get that. Um, if you want to view the mobile version in the desktop Safari, you can go to the index underscore mobile.html file, and it will load that. Um, the thing is that you want to make sure that um, you use uh, only a WebKit-based browser like Safari or something, because it's not going to work in Firefox or IE, because it's using some very um, mobile Safari um, specific uh, JavaScript routines. So I'll go to the next slide and we'll talk a little bit about customizing. So um, if we go to the next slide, you'll see um, there, there are several things you can customize to, to make the look be what you'd like it to be. Um, some very simple things are there's a main.css file, which is the main um, and only cascading style sheet for the iPhone-based um, version of the site, the mobile version. Um, and, and anyone with any CSS experience, and, and if you use um, various web inspectors, you can kind of figure out what classes are being used and what IDs are being used. And, and anyone who sort of can, can look at that should be able to um, sort of backtrack and, and change the style to meet whatever um, look they want. Um, also in the images folder, there are various images you can customize, you know, a background, you know, the button images, that sort of thing, where you can make it look the way you want to. Um, and then there are two files in the um, templates folder, um, header.tpl and footer.tpl. What this does, this affects how the desktop version looks. Um, the header.tpl is something that is shown above all the, um, basically everything in the content. So this is where you would include things like site-specific style sheets, um, any sort of branding or badging you want to include for the, for the, the conference, that sort of thing. And then, of course, the footer is anything that goes below that. Um, this allows you to very simply create a, a sort of shell for your desktop site um, using your own graphics and branding for whatever it is you want to do. Um, there, there also is other areas where you can go. You, you know, obviously, there's a lot of PHP stuff you can go into to customize how certain things look. Um, but, but sort of that, that requires digging in a little deeper. But, but these are the, the, the things that for most people will be suitable to, um, to, to customize it in, in many of the ways they want to. Um, so um, you can go to the next slide, and, and that sort of concludes what, what I want um, to, to talk about. So um, I guess I'll turn it back over to Scott, and uh, we can move on to the next part. All right. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Pete, and uh, also Anton and Lloyd. Uh, we do have a number of questions that uh, we'll go over in just a second, but uh, we still have time for our audience to submit more questions, and that can be done at the bottom of your viewer window in the little text chat window. 
Um, so let's uh, let's start with, uh, I think, a question in reference to uh, a piece that you were talking about, Anton, during Vision 2020, uh, the example of the Dean's panel discussion where uh, folks were able to submit questions, in, I guess, in the discussion form, and then those were taken and actually put into a survey or poll uh, so that people could vote, and that sort of drove what uh, roundtables you had later in the conference. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on behind the curtains there? How much is automated and, and how much is somebody, you know, copying and pasting things in, you know, in a form or a database or how does that actually, uh, how does that magic happen on the back end? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. Um, since I was a moderator of that session, um, what was happening is one of the, uh, I had a couple of plants in the audience as well who were monitoring, we gave them administrative access. Um, and they were monitoring the discourse, and uh, they were actually helping generate questions based on things that were coming up. So, for instance, um, Pete was one of the guys uh, who was sitting in the audience, and he was able to actually see, you know, I've, I'm seeing the discourse, and it looks like 10 people seem to have the same question about something, and he could actually go into the back end, um, and as one of the administrators of that session could actually type a question, so they were developing questions on the fly as things were uh, going on. And in fact, I was monitoring what was going on on the stage as well, which meant that I wasn't really listening very much to what the, moder uh, what the panelists were saying, which was kind of an interesting different role for a moderator. And then when there were sufficient questions, like five or six, um, during a break between um, what the previous question the panelists were addressing, I would say, okay, um, there's a new question uh, we'd like to ask the audience. Um, can you please vote on this while the panel discusses this next topic? So I would ask the panelists another question, and in the meantime, the uh, audience would actually vote on the next question to come up based on the discussion that they just had during the previous question, if that makes sense. It was, it was very scary at times because uh, things were happening very, very fast, uh, and things had to be posed a certain way um, and very quickly. And then the roundtable discussion thing, uh, they were voting on that during coffee breaks as well. So we posed those questions and gave them a longer period of time to actually decide which roundtables they wanted to go to. Um, kind of related to that a little bit, and I'm not sure if this was mentioned, but uh, the question is, is the admin interface formatted for the mobile device. So if, if you have, uh, obviously, a lot of text to enter, you, you're going to want a laptop or something like that. But can you actually access the admin interface with the mobile device? You actually can. However, it is not in um, sort of, it's not an iPhone web app. Um, currently, the administrative interface um, will use the sort of the desktop Chrome, as I call it. You know, so in other words, it doesn't look like a web app. Technically, you could. I mean, as, as anything else, the, the iPhone can load regular web pages. Um, however, it is not in a iPhone web app format. Um, that is definitely something that um, we would consider because, you know, it, it, it could be done, um, but, but it's, it's not currently there. Okay. But that doesn't mean you couldn't do it. It just means it wouldn't be in an iPhone web app uh, scenario. Yeah, it's simply not as convenient because, you know, full keyboard and being able to type quickly and, and uh, do things like that, um, having a keyboard is actually very helpful. We actually found a lot of people with, with very, um, with the sessions that had a lot of discussion, um, we actually had people switch to their laptops because they found it was a lot easier to do the discussion part using a keyboard than using, you know, their phones. Um, and, and since the experience is the same from a just data standpoint, um, there, there are some people who kind of realize, hey, you know what, I can type quicker when I use my laptop. Um, so that, the point is you have the option. Okay. Uh, Pete, can you clarify? I know you had this on a slide, but, but a viewer is, is wondering why uh, there's some limitation for some views on the WebKit browsers versus generic browsers. Um, okay. Yeah, can, so, you, can you go over that again? Sure, I'll, I'll clarify, and, I, and I, I was trying to figure out a way to concisely say that, and it was probably tough. So what, what I mean is 
if you go to index underscore mobile.html, which basically what it does is, well, I'll give you the, what it happens is when you go to the website, so when you just go to the mobile AP, what it's going to do is that, that, that landing page is going to inspect the user agent of the browser. And if it, is a, if it is a mobile Safari browser, it will direct you immediately um, to the mobile version, you know, the, the iPhone OS version. And so they'll have that experience. If, however, you're on a desktop, it will give you the desktop version. The desktop version is fully compatible with any modern web browser. So that does not require any WebKit browser to use. However, if you want to view the mobile version through a desktop browser, in other words, you want, you know, maybe you don't have an iPhone, but you want to see what it looks like, um, it really only works well with WebKit-based um, browsers. Now, I do know that Firefox does work. I just also know that there are some limitations. Now, not to pass the buck here, but some of the limitations are based on the code that Dash code generates. In other words, it's not the, the front-end code that we use to talk to the to the, to the server or anything. It's actually the presentation code that is not something that I developed. It's something that's part of the um, web app um, suite that Dash code generates. And, and um, I, I wouldn't even remotely give it a chance in IE just because um, the, the JavaScript some of that is, is, is very different. But part of the reason for that is because the Dash code that's generated um, is, is really was only ever designed to be actually viewed on an iPhone. Um, but again, you can still view the site from a regular browser. You just, you know, you may not be able to look at what all the iPhone people are looking at from anything but a WebKit-based browser. D does that seem to be more clear, I hope? Yes, I, I think so. No, thank you for that. Um, very much, uh, very much so. Good clarification. Uh, let's see, you know, a lot of questions coming in, which is great. So there's still time if you have questions, and they are continuing to come in, and uh, we definitely appreciate that. Uh, so you, you did talk about how to get data uh, into the application, uh, the attendee directory, and, and all that stuff. Uh, but the one thing uh, we didn't see was how do you actually get images? Is that just part of a web form, or how do you get you know, a picture for each attendee into the system? that attendee um, interface is um, the, the form includes an, a, pl a, w a place to upload an image. So that is part of the attendee form and the admin interface. Okay. And let's see. Uh, what about polling results? Uh, how are those actually saved? Are those saved uh, anonymously, just an aggregate, or uh, are they saved at more granular level so you know you know, at the individual user, what their response was to a given survey or poll. So um, the way this works um, in the current iteration is um, you have to log in to answer a question. Basically, you have to log in to do just about anything aside from just looking at things. Um, and the system does log who answered what question. That does two things. Um, the, the first and foremost is basically only allow a person to answer a question once, um, which is sort of important if you're really wanting to get statistically meaningful data, because if someone can answer 10 times, then that doesn't really help. Um, and so the data is stored in the database as pairs of, here's this person, here's what they answered. Um, and feel free, you know, folks can feel free to look through the, the data schema. You can probably figure out how it does it. Um, however, as far as it's displayed to the public, in other words, the non-administrators, there is no way to see what an individual attendee um, uh, said. In other words, you can't say, well, John Appleseed answered it this one. However, there is a way, um, although I'll be honest, I'm not sure if it's completely done in the version I have up on the website right now, um, to, for an administrator or a presenter to basically get a, call it a, a, a dump of the data where they can see what each attendee and how they answered. So if, if, if a person wants to deconstruct that from an individual basis, they could do that. Okay. Uh, let's see, a uh, question about uh, scalability um, and they're referencing that the, they think this is a more beneficial application for large lecture hall classes as opposed to small discussion courses. And of course that may be debatable, but uh, in their opinion that's what they foresee the, the uh, um, a better use for this application. 
uh, and they're wondering what size of classroom are you intending to scale this to? Um, and of course, we've, we've already talked about Apple's own uh, use and deployment where we had about 700 attendees. Uh, but what, what's your thinking in terms of ultimate scalability? I'm not sure if you want to go with larger than 700 for a lecture anyway, but uh, what are your thoughts there? I mean, I think the proof is in the pudding, right, Lloyd? I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, and we only made some very small modifications to Apache. The server we used was stock configured. Um, you know, I think we could we could scale it up even even larger than that because I think from experience, university networks tend to be a little better than hotel networks. Um, absolutely. Yeah, and and also one thing about these hotel networks is that they were running B wireless, not G. Right, so there, I mean, there was definitely a smaller pipe to to consider there. So any, I mean, any modern network is going to going to kick the crap out of what we had. And, and I would I would say, the way I looked at it, and and, and I'm keeping mind, and and Lloyd, I'm, I'm glad Lloyd brought up the changes we made. We actually made the exact same changes to Apache. The problem is that's mm -hmm. not something that I can make part of the app because um, I, I don't want to. I mean, we can encourage certain changes yeah. to Apache, but that's not something the app can do. Um, so I definitely encourage using uh, mod deflate um, and 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 expires is something you have to depends on on the nature of, of the situation. But but definitely use caching mechanisms to do that. Um, but I would say um, in almost any circumstance, um, your network is going to be your your scaling factor, not the app. Um, the bandwidth just is not that much. This will saturate. Uh, I mean, you're going to saturate the network. I think before you're going to hit the limits of a server. Yeah, and if I can, I mean, we actually researched the size of these packets that are coming down, and you're talking two kilobytes is once you've loaded that, that app into place, the framework, the actual data that comes down that tells you about sessions, that tells you about the schedule, is like is two kilobytes, which is nothing at all. I mean, there are images, single images that are, you know, larger than that, most of them Yeah, are. I think the buttons are bigger than that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I would say, um, uh, Scott, I think you said this, and I would, I would agree. Um, I think if you're looking at a lecture larger than that, um, perhaps the lecture is ill-conceived, maybe. <laughs> I mean, right. I, I... Well, that's great. So another question, um, I'm not really sure what they mean by is video in development, but uh, I guess maybe generically speaking, uh, supporting different MIME types, you know, different multimedia, uh, what, what are your thoughts for uh, support today and in the future? There's a lot of different ways to handle video, um, and, and a lot of it depends on how creative you want to get. Um, we are actually also using this um, same application um, for a conference this weekend um, at the uh, University of South Florida, and, and they actually have some video as part of this. Um, however, um, what, what we did for our conference, in other words, to let's say support, let's say you were recording the sessions and you wanted the sessions available. What we ended up doing was putting the sessions on our iTunes U page. Um, now, the, the, the upside is that, that they sort of handle the, the storing of the video and also the, the, the distribution of it. The downside is that currently the iPhone OS does not have any mechanism for displaying iTunes U content in the, the device. Um, I think once that happens, then that gets a lot simpler because then we would probably recommend using iTunes U. That being said, um, you can also include just regular links to video clips. So I think right now, obviously, you would not embed the video in the website. Uh, you would probably obviously have it linked somewhere else. Um, and so there's really nothing stopping you from, as a part of, an, uh, of a session intro, um, to have a link to um, a media clip that would then automatically load into the, the, the iPhone OS um, you know, browser. Um, that's one nice thing is that if, if it's a, a QuickTime file, that um, especially if it's encoded uh, with H.264, um, it's going to play very well on the device. And again, probably your only limitation there is going to be your network. So I, I would say the platform itself, in other words, the mobile AP, probably may not have video as a part of it. Um, but but the, the, the fact is that with the links and other things, you have the ability to make video a part of your sessions. Okay, great. So basically you just link out to the video source and you, you could actually have a, a survey asking questions about a video they would view that would be served up from another server somewhere. Maybe even YouTube, right? Because you could do that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. YouTube is a great example. In fact, we had several uh, sessions actually link YouTube clips um, 
for as part of their session, and, and they just load up right in the YouTube viewer on the device. Great. Well, um, that uh, brings us to the to the end of uh, the questions. Um, there is a request to uh, know where to download the source again. I know that was in the slide, um, so maybe you could just read out the URL. But I, I will say that uh, we'll, we'll um, get MacLearning.org to also link um, to the application. So if folks can't remember what uh, Pete's about to say in terms of a URL, you can just go to MacLearning.org. Uh, probably by tomorrow, uh, to find that link. But Pete, why don't you go ahead and give us the URL one more time. Sure. It's um, daap.uc.edu slash mobileap, which is M-O-B-I-L-A-P. So that's daap.uc.edu slash M-O-B-I-L-A-P. And that will lead you to a page where you can download the the, um, the source. And um, obviously, we will be posting up uh, improvements as they get made. Um, and, and I also welcome you, and I believe I include this in the README file, um, although um, I'm not sure if the email address is actually set up. We, we had set up an email address. Um, uh, it'll be mobileap at dap.uc.edu, um, where you can, um, you know, Send suggestions, questions, comments, that sort of thing, and um, uh, you know, keep uh, keep the development going. All right, great. So I want to thank Anton Harfman and Pete Akins from University of Cincinnati's College of Design, Architecture, Art, and Planning for joining us on today's webcast, and also Lloyd Thompson from Apple. Uh, thanks again, guys. Great webcast, and I uh, hope we're going to generate a lot of traffic to download the mobile AP application. Thanks to our audience for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next month. Thanks. <laughs>